I wonder if you've ever had someone say, who do you think you're talking to? When it's said by a parent, a teacher or a sports referee, uh, you, you know that they're demanding more respect. Well, the tone is different, but in a town built in honour of an earthly king, Caesarea Philippi, one man with few possessions, a man by the name of Jesus Christ with a band of loyal followers, asked this question, who do people say that I am? But then he asked his followers, who do you say that I am? The question searched for an awareness of his greatness. And if you understood his greatness, then you would offer him the kind of respect that he deserves. In answering Jesus' question, some thought Jesus was a great hero of the past who'd come back from the dead. But one of his disciples, Peter, he nailed it. He said, you are the Christ. That's no small thing to say. Uh, the Christ is God's king. It's a kingly expression. Uh, he's the king of history. In fact, uh, Jesus gives us a little bit of a glimpse at the nature of his kingship when he describes himself as the son of man. That's a history title in the Bible, uh, picked up in a number of places in the Psalms and in the book of Daniel. And in the Bible, the Son of Man, in the book of Daniel, was one welcomed into heaven by God the Father, allowed to approach the throne of the Father. But more than this, the Father gave this Christ, the authority of God to judge the world according to the world's response to this king. So our response to Jesus is crucial. You get a glimpse of this judgment expectation in Jesus' warning in Mark chapter 8 and verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. <laughs> That's a lot scary, that verse. For how many of us have acted like we're ashamed of Jesus and his words? In fact, every time we ever sin, we are in a sense acting like we're ashamed of Jesus and all that Jesus stands for. So being ashamed of Jesus is uh, dangerous, requiring really an unashamed of Jesus' future. You may have lived a certain way in the past, but the future is before us and living unashamed of him is crucial. He is the ruling king of our futures. This Jesus will be our judge and his judgment concerns the relationship that we have or we don't have with him. But with the right understanding of Peter uh, comes the most enigmatic of moments, really. Watch the Bible passage if you've got it open there at home. Mark chapter 8, and I'm reading from verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I'm not sure what Peter was thinking at that point. Just prior to this, Peter had actually acknowledged that he is God's king and now Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke God's king. Not the smartest move, I wouldn't have thought. And it certainly didn't turn out that way. Because when Jesus, we're told, verse 33, turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This all-powerful king, though, acknowledges that he is going to suffer and be killed at the hands of people. You can't help but be surprised by that. And as Peter seeks to talk Jesus out of a suffering future, Jesus sees Satan at work in Peter's comments as he responds, Get behind me, Satan. You have to wonder why a king will willingly die for his people. Not a terribly common picture in our world. And you've got to ask why not killing Jesus, why Jesus not dying, Jesus would consider as playing into the hands of Satan himself. It's as though the final battle for the king's kingdom and the rescue of humanity is going to be won or lost on the basis of this king's death. And in fact, it is. But it will be a death like no other. It will be a death of enormous value to you and to me. Think about what sin has done to our world for a moment. In fact, look at what it has done to you and consider its impact upon you. Someone has said, that it has taken God out of education, morality and virtue out of literature, beauty and truth out of art, ethics out of business, fidelity out of marriage, and so much more. But in Mark 8, the crucifixion of King Jesus is looming as the answer to human sin that so ruins us. On the hill of Jesus' crucifixion, the God who has every right to condemn us for our sins. There he will fight for our forgiveness. What we see in the Bible is the moment when God will reach across a great divide in order to rescue you and me. Uh, in April 2002, I was at a place called Coiler Lake when they opened the lake to the sea. Within three days, uh, that outlet was like a raging river running flat out to one of the roughest seas of the time. Uh, one boy came down, in fact, to ride this rushing river on his bodyboard, only to see, in the end, himself lose the board, climb out on the other side of the river and watch his board get washed out to sea and blown further and further away. I have to say it wasn't long before uh, the boy's agitation over losing his surfboard turned to the agitation of being on the wrong side of the raging river and uh, evening was approaching. 
Up and down that outlet bank, he wandered. The anxiety was clearly growing. At times, he looked like he was going to try and swim across on his own. And uh, we were quite concerned for him. In fact, I felt sure we would need to courageously risk life to actually rescue him. So I did what any man would do. I told my wife, Janine, that she should be getting ready to go in after him. Um, (laughs) No, I didn't really say that. Um, But we did think that we might actually have to conduct a rescue such that he didn't get washed out to sea. Thankfully, his father arrived, grabbed two surfboards. He paddled across at the most peaceful point and proceeded to bring his son back to safety. You know, I've seen that boy's agitation in people of all ages. There's no shortage of people who have lost what they invested life in only to discover the enormous and dangerous divide that they'd allowed to erode between them and God. Why, this could even be your own experience right now. Living on the other side, agitated by what you see, concerned that there is no future, Well, let this register with you. Jesus has crossed the agitated divide and his death would be the activity of God to bring people like you and I back to himself, back to safety. I can't help but be absorbed by this moment in uh, Mark's Gospel in the 8th chapter. As just before Jesus makes his response to Peter, he turns and he looks at his disciples. And then he goes on to say to Peter, You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, here is a king that rules like no other. He rules in accordance with the things of God, not the things of men. He has the power and authority to judge every person. But note this. The rule of God considers the welfare of his people above above all things. The welfare of his people is his concern at all costs. What's on the king's mind as he responds to Peter is us, his disciples. Of course, the king's desire for our welfare comes at no small cost. When we glance at Mark 15 and remember that first Good Friday, Jesus is bashed to the point that he could not even carry the apparatus for his own capital punishment. They hurled insults and shook their heads in who knows how many patronizing ways at him. They gambled for his few belongings below the agony of his nailed feet. They mocked him and they challenged the miracle-working king in what may have been actually Satan's final temptation of him, to come down off the cross and to not die for us, 
if he truly was a king. Indeed, if he was an earthly king, he wouldn't have died for us. Rather, earthly kings tend to have their subjects die for them. But the worst moment in the entire crucifixion scene uh, seemingly is to be heard in those strange foreign words that Jesus says from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know, I, I can't begin to understand the anguish of God the Father and God the Son at this point. You need to understand the relationship they share. John Piper, in one of his books, writes this. He says, The Son of God has always been the landscape of God's excellencies and the panorama of God's perfections. So that from all eternity, God has beheld the indescri with indescribable satisfaction the magnificent terrain of his own radiance reflected in his son. <laughs> what anguish there must have been. While these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? May highlight the anguish of God. They also magnify the love of God for you and for me. You see, the answer to Jesus' question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, it is to God's glory, but the answer is me and it's you. All that sin has succeeded to do to me, made me to become or kept me from becoming just like you before God. Jesus undoes it at the cross. In the closing moments of the movie Saving Private Ryan, which uh, interestingly has been on Fox in only the last week, amidst the carnage of war lies the blood-soaked body of Ryan's commanding officer who looks at the man he is dying for and he gasps with his last breaths, earn it. Earn it. As the movie ends, it's many years later, and we see a very old private Ryan kneeling before the grave of that captain amidst a sea of crosses, that kind of picture that we're familiar with in our Anzac celebrations. And there, as he kneels, he wonders if he's done enough to satisfy the price paid for him to live. It's a very moving moment in the movie, but perhaps more moving. And interestingly, as King Jesus hangs blood-soaked on a cross, he never tells you and I to earn it. He says, I forgive you. Thank heaven for that. Our friendship with God doesn't begin with a request to do the impossible, to earn what Jesus has paid for, but with the offering of forgiveness that the Bible, that the, 
but it, it, but it begins with the offer of forgiveness that the Bible says only a fool would refuse. But as Satan sought to stop Jesus denying himself and going to the cross, it's a dead certainty, I think, that Satan will try to convince you, indeed the whole world, to refuse all that Jesus did on the cross for us. And that refusal will leave people certainly dead with no eternal future. So in Mark 8, King Jesus tells us how to enter that friendship which undoes our past history with sin uh, to enter into a future in the love and the goodness of God that Jesus Christ brings for us. In verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd and his disciples together in chapter 8. In other words, he wants everyone to hear what he is about to say. There's no exclusive group here. This is for everyone. And he exhorts them to forget what cannot save them and to follow him. He says, if, you, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To the pleasure-seeking hedonist who pursues the good life of worldly pleasure. Compare that pursuit against the loss of your soul. Is it worth it? It's not that Christian life is without fun and without its joy. But limiting your life to fun for a moment. Is it worth it? The loss of a joy filled forever? Verse 36, Jesus says, What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? To the economically desirous, or perhaps in the current season, shattered, consider your transactions. Would any commodity... With a short-term return, be worth losing everything that is worth something in the long term. How good is the exchange rate for what you now live for if it's going to cost you your soul? Verse 37, Jesus says, what can a person give in exchange for their soul? To the agnostic. Doubt is cold satisfaction against a truth denied. To the atheist, your persistent unbelief in God issues in a life for which there is no salvation and no hope beyond the grave. And I challenge you to convey such a crass worldview with its grievous emptiness to your spouse and to your children. There is no hope in that. Now Jesus says, follow me. Follow me, a choice for forgiveness and a future with God. You know, in Mark 15, as I watched Simon of Cyrene dragged from the crowd to carry Jesus' cross, I have to wonder how Simon actually carried that cross. 
His name is there. That's what he does in Mark 15. But did he curse the fact that he had been asked to carry the cross? Or was he delighted by the privilege of carrying the cross on which all his sins and failures he knew would be forgiven? Which would you choose? To curse this dying saviour for the interruption that he might be to yourself? Or would you take up your cross and follow him? Thankful that he is indeed the saviour of yourself. Why don't we pray? Lord Jesus, as God's king, we receive you as our Lord and saviour and submit to you. As a sinful people, we want to say we're sorry for the pain we've caused you. As our saviour, we want to thank you for taking the punishment of our sins on the cross. And we ask you now for the privilege of carrying your cross. We pray that your love for us would inspire within us the Christian life. Please help us to make all the necessary changes in our lives that will help us love you as you deserve and so love others as you would expect. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you this Easter season. Thank you for your time.